this podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. Aline, and I'm the co-founder of Natakalam. The economic situation is so bad that really, you know, you almost have no choice but to protest if you are part of, um, you know, this, you know, this portion of the population that is really being hurt very uh, profoundly. So, you know, I think that really does push people back to the streets because there's no way to just carry on. I mean, the Eustink protests, from what I remember, were really... um, a very small subset of the people, you know, a lot of people weren't involved the way today, you know, I go back to Beirut and at 8 p.m. in Ashrafiye, I mean, last time I was there, everyone was on the on the porch with the, you know, banging the, the casserole, you know, the, the pots and, and pans. And, you know, that's pretty amazing. And people that I've never seen as people who would actually be those ones to go down and protest, going down and protesting. Of course, you know, I, I say this with a little bit of, um, you know, cautious cynicism because this is what we heard with Syria. This is what we heard with Egypt. You know, everyone all across the, you know, political and socioeconomic classes and religions. You know, I think there, we're seeing a lot of the same and, and risks of this not necessarily becoming this this euphoric moment that we were living right in that October 17th to end of October moment, right? That right. was just like ecstatic, you know? So in a way, it's, it's layers of issues that have sort of lined up for the moment that have driven people to the point of potentially no return. Yeah, and, and one other thing is that I also think patience is critical, right? Mm-hmm. Like no, no one, did we really think change would come overnight or within a couple of weeks and is change in a couple of weeks, what we really want, yes, right? Because that always uh, brings other risks as well. So again, you know, I do speak from my, um, you know, Lebanese abroad uh, p- position, and I've been on the quieter side, observing, trying to make sense of what's going on, and I really um, am in complete admiration of those on the ground. And as Lebanese expats, I think we all have this funny feeling of like, We care so much and we're invested so much, but the truth is we have an easy way out, which is a second passport and opportunities that way. And that's a, you know, it's, it's a funny feeling for me sometimes. And I, I have to often battle with feeling a bit of guilt to make sure that that it's not guilt, but it's actually just feeling empowered that, you know, as someone with that option, you know, what is it that, you know, we as the expats can do and support, um, but the battles are different. I think it's very mm. important, mm. you know, for me, like what my cousins who don't have another passport are dealing with in Lebanon versus what I am is still different. Yes. Um, and for me, it's kind of, uh, it's just something to, to be aware of, I find, uh, and you know, I'm very much aware of that. But I like that you've opened the door to a, a subject, which I think is, it's, it's very important, 
and it perhaps is more relevant today than before, which is the diaspora's relationship to Lebanon. And we both attended a panel discussion at LAU a week ago, I believe, and that was the subject. And you could tell that the audience was well aware that there are, there are limitations, but at the same time that there's real desire to be involved. And that kind of opens the door to another subject, this broad issue of connectivity. And connectivity to me, I think, speaks volumes because you don't need to be in Lebanon right now to really appreciate what's happening. And I was there the whole time. I recently left. You were there maybe two or three times, but you experienced it regardless. And I know that it's very important to see it with your own eyes, mm -hmm. but there's many things I think you could just feel that you were part of it while you're abroad. And I just want to touch on technology here and what technology has maybe allowed us to do. When you first realized what was happening, how did you first engage that information? It was actually um, a friend of mine in Beirut who sent me um, the article on the people going down to the streets because of the WhatsApp text. So you received an article. That was the first... Well, a friend yeah. on WhatsApp sent me the article. Okay, right, right. That's, that's yeah. my point. Yeah, so WhatsApp was the sort mm -hmm. of delivery. Okay. Yeah. So I was in Washington, D.C. Yeah. Um, I had just arrived from Paris uh, for a conference. Um, and so I was busy pre like preparing for the conference. And then I was just talking to my, my girlfriend, a friend of mine, and um, I was like, how are things going? And she's like, oh, well, look at this. And so that's, you know, it was... It was a friend who then pointed me to this article. I think it was, I don't mm -hmm. know. The and where was Russian. your friend? She was in Lebanon. Okay, so this is perfect. I didn't yeah. know any of this, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're describing it. That's the fundamental difference to me, is that you are on a flight from Washington, D.C. From Paris to Washington. So from Paris to Washington, D.C. You're flying in the opposite direction of Lebanon, right? Mm -hmm. And you land in America, and you get a WhatsApp message from your friend in Lebanon sharing with you protests that are underway. That is special, and I don't think it's really talked and I don't think it's thought through properly that the world is so connected right now that you're always caught up with what's happening in Lebanon, mm -hmm. and you can react to it on a whim. How long was it from that message to the flight to, uh, to Beirut? Well, so it was, um, you know, I saw the protests. I didn't react too much, and then the next day I was on the train from D.C. to New York, and then someone sends me the photo um, of, you know, the kiddie pool that was set up amidst the protests. And uh -huh. I think okay. it was in Sindelfil, a photo of like... Within so, days, I think, of the... So, kiddie, I mean, yeah. I think, right, it, like, I think this was a Thursday or Friday. And then on the Saturday, um, everyone had gone down to the streets. And it was like the protests, but like Lebanese party style. And I was very confused. You know, I was trying to follow, but I was very much focused on my conference as well. <laughs> and then, but distracted. But su yeah. super distracted. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and I'm and my friends on WhatsApp start sending me photos of this what's going on in Lebanon. And I get to New York, and I had um, a couple of days in New York before going to a conference in San Francisco. I was kind of on my autumn a string of conferences in in the states, and people are sharing with me, and and you know, I was like. I was cautious, right? So my excitement was very reserved in the beginning, just because, you know, anyone who's really uh, followed closely what's happened in the region and was so excited about these incredible uprisings that shook the world in 2011, I mean, when we think of how, I remember watching Occupy Wall Street 
people talk about how they were inspired by Egyptians, right? This reverse thing, you know, like, uh, so, you know, I think a lot of us and a lot of people who were very enthusiastic about what happened in, in 2011 have just become very careful. Again, also with the Eustink protest, there was a bit of excitement, and then, you know, that died out. So I was very, you know, just looking at this and, and very, you know, like, I'm not sure what's going on. This feels a bit, almost like, it just feels very Lebanese, like partying, you know? And what's, like, what's going on behind it? Uh, and, and, you know, I was trying to maybe get some input from people, and everyone that I was talking to was just really excited and just just clearly it seemed like an incredible moment, but more like a Woodstock moment. And who, who were you engaging mostly when you were getting that information? Or, or how were you... How were you living the moment while you weren't in Lebanon? And I mean it in a, in a really basic way. Were you using social media? Were you turning to Lebanese TV stations? Like, how were you accessing that? More um, more directly talking to friends. So just yeah. literally... On WhatsApp. Connecting with friends and having conversations with these friends. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as a former, you know, someone who's worked a bit in journalism... Uh, worked a lot in, you know, everything related to information and, and data. Actually, I did a bit of my work at SIPA, at Columbia on that. I I don't know really how much I like the news and media. I'd rather talk to trusted sources that are my friends and people who I find are very knowledgeable of the Lebanese political scene. And that's the people I, I connect with. Um, and also talking to my family who might not be people who love to talk about politics or analyze things going on because they kind of want to forget the politics and move on with their lives and then hearing their feedback. So for me, it's more getting the feedback from people are on the ground, people are there in in the protests. And, and of course, you know, grabbing a few headlines here and there. But I'm more of a, I like to talk to my people, uh, my, my friends who are very involved on the ground. I think there's no perfect segue to link what you're describing, conversations, and connectivity, to what you do. Because that <laughs> is the essence of your whole career at the moment. True. In a sense, it's even in the name, <laughs> Natakallam. And I think of Natakallam, which as we speak, more than just conversations, obviously, requires a level of connectivity that is of the moment. This couldn't have been done 20 years ago, or let alone maybe even 10 years ago. It would have been a difficult accomplishment. Now we take it for granted that this can be done. What is the idea born out of? Is it the Lebanese experience? Is it the regional experience? Is it just your own personal uh, willingness to engage a wider audience? What took you to do that? And then we can sort of get into where it is today. You know, it is a, the sum of all these things and obviously a very, very direct product of, of my, my, my experience as a Lebanese who grew up in New York. Um, so basically, Natakalam is a social enterprise that provides an income to displaced people and more recently displaced people and host communities by leveraging the gig economy and their language skills to uh, provide them with remote work opportunities in that, that are all related to language and culture. So teaching a language, um, translating work, and even doing uh, virtual exchange sessions. And they're all related to also conversations, dialogue, understanding, and building bridges. And of course, you know, I've watched what's going on in Lebanon, heartbroken. And my goal when actually I, I brought Netzekadam to life was 
to actually make sure you know we find a way for Lebanon to remain stable and think of ideas that Syrians can access an income without directly taking it from the Lebanese, right? That was the fundamental idea that I was thinking of in 2014. Um, but of course, seeing what's going on today in Lebanon and seeing uh, the dire economic situation and also knowing how many people out there are interested in Lebanese dialect and how many uh, mothers uh, who are Lebanese want their children to speak Lebanese dialect. Um, we've decided, and, and you know, I've decided personally from you know the amount of effort I can put in running a startup and a social enterprise, which is quite consuming, is that you know we have actually it makes perfect sense today um, in light of the fact that Lebanon also hosts the highest density of refugees per capita in the world um, to launch. Uh, Netakalam sessions with Lebanese in Lebanon. Is that is that because of what's happening to the country right now? That the because the economy is so bad that you're in a way expanding beyond the Syrian refugee population. So I mean, we've already. Or, or is, gone, it, is it genuine curiosity in the Lebanese dialect from people abroad? It's a combination, and, right? Because mm, mm. when you're a social enterprise, you know we're not depending on passive being passive recipients of something mm. there's a two-sided market here right so you know it's first of all you know we're working beyond syrian refugees already right displaced iraqis yemeni um palestinians who mm. are still refugees um so but they all tend to be displaced populations oh, yes right. exactly the lebanese are not in that category no, right but also in the refugee ecosystem mm. most organizations have now all made it part of their mandate to work with refugees and vulnerable communities of the right. host population. So, of course, we're a little bit different. We're gig economy. We're on the Internet, so it's slightly different. But with all these factors in mind and the fact that we know people want to support Lebanese, want to find ways to support Lebanese from, from abroad, and want to learn Lebanese dialect. Mm. So this was a, a decision that is, again, a practical decision, but also a very sensitive dis- decision to what's going on and a sustainable way also to support right. you and, know and it's born out of the moment that because of what's happening on the on the yeah ground, yeah mm. when when is it in effect when when will it be launched so we've as of march 2020 people can sign up for sessions with lebanese to practice are you going to lebanese sign up dialect. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness i you know i almost signed up last week because we're testing our new platform yeah i'm like this is the perfect opportunity actually the, when i what's up with some of our syrian tutors you know, to talk about something, or they're, they're always writing to me in Arabic, and they're like, Yalla, Aline, when are you signing up? We need to work on your Arabic. <laughs> so, you know, like, the idea of Natakalam was because I needed to practice my Arabic, but I've had, you know, the, the chaos of running Natakalam prevents me from actually signing up. That would be very but, funny um, if that's how it ends. But, you know, you know like, actually, no, no, I'm really, and I've even thought about it a bit for Spanish, because I like to brush up on my mm, Spanish. Mm, mm, mm. Um, you know, it's, it's always, I'm always... I'm always in such admiration when I see student profiles, you know, fully American. They write their whole email in Arabic. You know, they're right. so brilliant in Arabic. And I'm like, wow. They are. Maybe the, but I, I mean, I don't want to, I'm not going to speak ill of them, but I, I, I'm assuming, this is just an assumption, that they're great at writing and they can't have a conversation. And I, I don't know if you, is, is that a typical... I don't have conversations with them. I just see their emails. You but, just see, right. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, in your experience, is that a sort of a standard situation where somebody is trained properly to read For and sure. write? I mean, of course, you know, people who have gone through the academic process yeah, of learning, right. they probably are very good at writing and yes, reading. Yeah. But of course, conversation, right? There's nothing you can, you can't get, 
you won't learn a language if you don't converse, if you don't Absolutely. practice, if you, you know, you can also um, play games and learn languages. Like there's, that's really popular today, but you're not going to get the nuances and the, the human side of things, right? And, and the takalam in essence, what we really feel is, is interesting about us is like, people see us as a tech startup, but we're really a completely, it's like a very human tech startup, I would say. And right. that's something we're really, we really love. And there, there's nothing, you know, even though the goal of Natakalam is to, in the most basic sense, provide income to people, what seems to always uh, transpire as the most powerful is the human connections and friendships they make. Which, you know what? It seems, in my own experience, that that is always lacking in the classical Arabic instruction. That there's less social yeah. component. Mm -hmm. You can literally, yeah. you can sit in a library, learn it, and master it, yeah. and never actually use it for anything beyond that. Yeah. And conversation, for better or worse, you don't write it. You need to talk it out. You need the human exposure. Yeah. And I mean... Obviously, you need to immerse yourself with people that speak that dialect. It's very difficult to learn it just by sitting alone and, and watching TV and, and sort of just trying to second guess it. You yeah. need to actually experience it. Yes, absolutely. The, the idea was kind of a, a, a little bit of a light bulb moment. Um, so uh, as a Lebanese who grew up in New York, in a Francophone household, I, I grew up speaking more French and English, and Arabic has always been my weaker language. And, you know, I grew up, I did, you know, Arabic classes on the weekends and AUB summer sessions. Well, that's why you don't speak Arabic, <laughs> the AUB summer sessions. <laughs> Ronnie. Uh, I'm kidding. We're both from, it's fine. I, I think you went to AUB as well. Yeah, I did some okay, Arabic. So we, so we can, yeah, we can yeah. both trash it just enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and of course, very much familiar with the whole, you know, discrepancy with Americans studying Fusha, coming to Beirut, and then not being able to talk to the cab driver, etc. And when I lived in Lebanon, I did quite a bit of, of Arabic. I focused on Hamiya, the dialect. Um, and I, I got to a point where, for me, what really mattered is just maintaining my conversational Arabic. Uh, and I was trying to do that from New York. So I, I had graduated from my master's here at Columbia. And I was job hunting. And I had all this free time, and I wanted to work on my Arabic. And I was trying to find ways to do that here in New York, but tutoring uh, was super expensive, and the classes were all focused on fusha. And at the same time, you know, most people, you know, I had been more in the journalist circle, in the humanitarian circle. You know, people who want to learn Arabic, you know, they go to Damascus, right? You go, you immerse yourself in Damascus, uh, of course, pre pre-war Damascus. Uh, but you, you can't immerse yourself in Beirut as much, right? So, so you know, that, always, that had always been a dream of mine that could no longer happen. And I was also watching, I was watching the news. Like, it was one morning in September. I'm just watching the headlines and just seeing just this, the, the number of Syrians in Lebanon and the situation for them and the fact that, um, you know, Lebanon is a fragile state. Lebanon... Uh, does not let Syrians work um, in the local economy for the most part. Um, I do understand why that is. Uh, but at the same time, what do you do when you have all of these people who are stuck there and don't have ways to access an income? But you decided to gauge that world from here, from, from abroad. Right, now, yeah. That, can I ask you, I mean, this is a, for me, it's it's a very bold step, which is I'm going to, find a way to do two things, to improve conversation skills and also find the means to, in a way, help 
-hmm. a very a very difficult situation. Right. So it's almost like you're solving your own, in a way, dream, and using it as a way to perhaps exactly improve. Yeah, but but does that how does that does that come from just being in SIPA in Colombia? Like where where does the idea come from? Because I like that you're describing yourself that you are in a way forced to deal with many languages, and you're also forced to deal with a classical language that's mm -hmm. not of any use to you, mm -hmm. and you just want to have people speaking their dialect. But where, where's it's that? very practical. So right. it's the practicality, very where, where, practical. Does it, where does it come from? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think I, I think I probably have very pragmatic, practical tendencies. <laughs> on, <laughs> so I'm, I'm a very, you know, maybe that's the more, like, American side of me. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But because you're saying a light bulb moment, and I see it. I know exactly what right, you're describing. Yeah. But I would never... And very often, startups come to life that way, right? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. Uber, Uber story. It was so a guy you, you who was waiting it, for a cab in the rain. Right. And he thought of if, you know, or, or something like so, that. So, so it's so. more in that way of looking, it's using technology for the moment. Yeah, it, it was, it was really, it, it really was grounded in two things. It's like, I want to practice my Arabic. And I had actually always dreamed of practicing in Damascus. Um, and you can't go there. And I can't go there. At the same time, I was, I was watching the news and I was just like, how can this be? And I was actually, you know, I had a lot of friends, in, Syrian friends. I knew the type of people who were in the streets in Damascus, who were uh, marching for basic rights, etc. And so I could also see how difficult it must be. And also just like what a, 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 a loss of human capital, all these people, like highly qualified people. And what, we're just going to leave them there? And then what, they're going to take the Mediterranean route and have, I don't know, what percentage of surviving that, it, you know, it was, for me, it's just, we cannot just leave this like this and let it happen. And at the same time, it, it, so it was this combination of these mm. two ideas. So it really is a personal story as well. I mean, the, the idea is born from your own personal curiosity, as well as that kind of, the technicalities that you've honed in, in maybe through education, but also just being here in New York yeah, gave I mean, you that kind of I don't think yeah. it, it was related to my education per mm -hmm. se. It was related to what I care about and my my belief that we should find solutions that there there had to because I was also concerned for Lebanon. I was concerned for yeah. Lebanon, I'm concerned for the Syrians, I'm concerned for the region. You know, you just look at the Middle East today. It's, it's an out of the box problem solving <laughs> idea. And I like it. I actually like the I like the It's not conventional, it's yeah. It's not conventional and there's enough curiosity to let you maybe try something that hasn't been tried before. And it seems so very straightforward. It's very I mean, simple. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very simple. And I, I think the, the, uh, the fact that it wasn't done before it may also be the level of connectivity we have today. Of course. Allows yeah. for these ideas to flourish now. Absolutely, but yeah. But you're, you're at the sort of the beginning of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, the original idea was like, if I were in Lebanon, I could actually connect with these, you know, with, with a Syrian tutor and... Mm -hmm. Maybe they can't get a job there, but they could be my tutor. Right. And I also believe that um, I have tutored French and English myself, and I think that there's a really powerful relationship you can get in a one-on-one -on -one setting, teaching someone something, and you can also get to know them and hear their story, which I think really is critical and important to changing people's minds mm -hmm. about the other. Um, so, you know, it was that combination, but then realizing, oh, but wait, we have Skype today. You know, oh, wait, I Skype with Teta all the time. You know, why couldn't, you know, I could Skype with my tutor. And also having been, you know, having had um, access to also programs where we're like, why don't you learn a language over Skype? So just the, the series of these things combined together. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had that 
that you're, idea. You're opening the door to the other subject. How are you able to guarantee that Skype will be uh, friendly enough there in Lebanon? Yeah. Given all the constraints. Yeah. And basic constraints. I mean, electricity, forget the internet connection. Mm-hmm. How do you guarantee that you'll have that consistency? Well, of course, that was a big... It was a challenge in the beginning um, that we've kind of found ways to work around. But no, I mean, Lebanon has internet issues. And whenever someone... When, when you sign up to Netakalam, you're given a little bit of like a guidelines document mm. where you're explain, You're told like... This is part of the... Part of the Please story. know yeah, yeah. that you know yeah. your tutor might be in circumstances right. that are beyond their control and impacts their connectivity. This doesn't really happen very often because we also, you know, Netakalam is not a charity. Netakalam right. is an enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. We're delivering a service, so whoever becomes a tutor on our platform also understands and agrees that they have a responsibility to try and make sure that if they have a session booked, right. they're going to be at the right time, at the right moment to get that connection. So it's really, they, they need to arrange the, they need to, in a way, alleviate those concerns also. Yeah, and you know, yeah. the Syrians who are kind of similar to us, they're like, the internet and the smartphone is the lifeline, right? We live, you know, anyone working on tech and refugee issues has heard, like, this is the era of the connected refugee. Smartphones are lifelines. People care more about their smartphone and their, um, you know, subscription to a phone line than about aid and about food, right? They stay in touch Is with their it, family. Would you, would you re- I mean, I, I've heard those analogies, but would you, do you echo those sort of... Absolutely, mm. within a certain subset of, of the refugee community. And, mm. you know, we talk about refugee as if it's like one monolithic, you know, sure. uh, entity, but, you know... Every there's refugees of all different uh, socioeconomic classes. There a refugee who's in a camp in Greece versus a refugee in Hamra versus a refugee who got to Paris. Yes, it's though, I so mean, different, I, you know. It's, again, some things I don't know enough about. I mean, stati- statistically, how many of the refugee population? Let's use Lebanon in particular. Have regular access to a smartphone? Is it is it a sizable figure? I think, so, you know, this is something that's hard to find. I think that a few times when we've tried to look up on, on the Syrians, mm. it was almost one out of two. That's a big number. So, yeah. so you, you, and, and then that, you're looking at it as, okay, we're going to focus on this community. We, we, can, we can assess that there's enough people that have access and therefore could help. Absolutely. And so there's never been a concern that this is even a, there's, there's no hindrance there, that the smartphone is taken for granted almost that at least half the population has a smartphone. Well, that's the, that might be the big, biggest part of the story, is that you can speak to... I mean, you don't need to... It's not difficult. No, it, engage, it isn't. You can engage a displaced person. Yeah, you can hear instantly. their story. You can support them in different you ways. You them. can yeah. have a conversation. I mean, our, our, our cute little like tagline, one of them is like, start a conversation. <laughs> you know, just start a conversation. Right. Conversa- conversations are the most powerful thing out there. You know, I'm a firm believer in that. And, uh, and yeah, and, and again, you know, one thing I do want to say is the word refugee is a very, uh, in my my opinion, a really tough word and complicated word, and mm. it comes with a lot of baggage today. So I do want to mention that when I use it, I use it with kind of a grain of salt to, to generalize a, you know, a population that's had to flee their home, yeah. um, but that I believe that today this word is really, it can be a little bit destructive as well. So I just like to acknowledge that whenever I talk about Netakalim. It's conversations in, in, the, in the dialect. 
And I think you're also maybe touching on something which I've always thought of in the background, that classical training is no longer that important. In Arabic? In Arabic. And I, I don't mean it in that it's, obviously it serves a function, and obviously it's the means of standard communication. The written word is in classical Arabic. But you're describing a world where there's not much writing. And I think connectivity, you don't need to write. I mean, you do, obviously there is some content, yes, but I'm going to sort of parallel example the protests that we saw for four and a half months. I, it's nice that you had an article sent your way and you were perhaps texting and, and that. My experience was very little content, very little written word, mostly just imagery, video, audio, and I could sort of, I could live the experience that way. And obviously it's conversations with protesters. Here you have a population and I very, very, it would be very strange to approach them in classical Arabic and ask them to start conversing in fusha to a foreign audience. And I think it's just, you're, you're touching on something which I think maybe is sometimes shied from, which is just embrace the dialect, be proud of it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very interesting, you know, the, the Arabic learning realm, you know, there, you know, there are people who still, um, and rightfully so, you know, will choose the fusha, the classical, but dialect, of course, is really becoming more and more embraced as well and is important. And, and the truth is, yes, the idea for Natakallam was conversation, like, let's start conversations. And of course, we naturally, you know, uh, in the startup lingo, you pivot or you just naturally grow. And we now, of course, Fusha is an option with Natakala. Oh, it is. Okay. We have a yeah. structured curriculum. Yeah. Um, and we do actually provide full on, you know, very structured, both Fusha and even structured like colloquial. Can I ask you just in terms of numbers, is the dialect figure always higher? Do you sense that um, there's more demand for... A little bit, yeah. And, and you know, mm. we've added, um, you know, Iraq. We work with Iraqis and mm. Palestinians mm. and Yemeni. And, and so people come in with slight, you know, slight preferences. Right, right, um, right. So it's, it's interesting to see that. But, you know, a lot of the people using Natakalam are tr traveling because they, they work in the field or they're journalists or, um, you know, they, they are looking for the conversational side of things. And the original idea was Natakalam is a complement to Fusha, right? So if you've studied yeah. Fusha... But now we actually have our own, you know, opportunity to learn Fusha as right. well. Now, the, you said journalists are using Natakalla? You know, mostly young professionals who are focused on the Middle East or who are coming back from the Middle East or mm. who are originally from, you know, the Arab uh, community. Okay, have so there is roots. a bit of your own experience in that story absolutely, too. Yeah, 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 people absolutely. like you that want to, yeah. And then we do yeah. have formal partnerships with universities and schools. Mm, okay. So those are our students. Right. So I'm curious, your experience today as a Lebanese social entrepreneur in the U.S. Can you give any advice to someone in Lebanon trying, let's say the Lebanese that cannot, and you said it well, your cousins and anyone that you know that is not able to get out, let's say and want to pursue a career abroad. Can something like this exist today in Lebanon? Can you see something like Natakallam or anything like that emerging in Lebanon today, given all the uncertainty and the constraints Lebanon is going through? I do think there is hope in startups and social enterprises. Uh, I see them as an important component, especially in the Middle East, where we see uh, governments that are not really <laughs> supporting, if not 
simply hurting mm. its popu- their population. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm a firm believer that, you know, uh, entrepreneurship and, and startups and social entrepreneurship do have a role to play. I am not a fan of the hype around startups and social entrepreneurship. It's become very mm. hyped up. Mm. And there is a hype and glorification of entrepreneurs and, and this, you know, startup founders, which I find is problematic. And um, I think people should, if they have an idea, they should do their research. If they think that nothing else is out there and there's a value to add, do what you can to explore and pursue it. But I think people sometimes, uh, there's this drive to create something. And, and I mean... Is the hype universal here in the U.S. and in the Yeah, the, the yeah. whole world is yeah, yeah, crazy yeah. about startups, mm, right? Mm. Like, it's so in fashion and social startups and, but the, you know... But the disadvantage to the hype is that people think it's easy. I think, yeah, and there's this obsession that, you know, everyone can launch a startup. Everyone can become right, an entrepreneur. Right. The truth is, it's, it's very hard and... I owe a lot of what we've been able to do with Netzakalam to being a dual citizen. I see. Um, so, and you, so you're acknowledging that as a Lebanese today trying to, try, with a creative mind and that kind of social entrepreneurial spirit, that you still have a severe disadvantage by not being able to do this abroad. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, especially depending on what is your sector. You know, like... Mm, you, yeah, yeah. You know, when you say entrepreneur, an entrepreneur could, is someone who's opened, a, you know, a, a small shop. That's an entrepreneur. But, you know, of course, mm-hmm. when we say entrepreneur, we tend to think startup entrepreneur of something that's going to scale massively or right. social entrepreneur. Right. Um, and really depending on your market and what your industry is, you know, I think there's different things. But, by, but for sure, I mean, a lot of startups travel and pitch and go to these big conferences and you know, just having an American passport has been let me do that, right? Whereas, so it's the, I see. So it's the access to that kind of market in a way. Absolutely, That's really what, yeah, to those settings, to those markets. Yeah. And I so, and that doesn't mean that no, it's impossible when you're a Lebanese. And there is a startup ecosystem in Lebanon, and there really, there's been a lot of you know great things coming out of it, and great efforts. And Egypt is quite vibrant, and of course Dubai. Mm-hmm. Um, but there tends to be this also like this obsession with, like, that will solve everything. I just think things always need nuance, and I really want to warn people, uh, like, uh, about about that. And being a founder and a startup founder is very hard, um, and it's, it's um, I think there's a glorification also. And I also think, you know, I, um, I think I like that, that you're saying this, because I don't hear this enough, this sort of, like, um, celebration of, of the big names and sort of yeah. that's it. You just need to aim to the top and you'll get there without appreciating the very difficult journey. The difficult journey and also the whole team, right? Like, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. The, the, you, people focus on founders and my co-founder and I am speaking for both of us, my co-founder Reza, um, we, we've found that a bit um, uh, unfortunate because, you know, yes, you know, we're, we're, you know, kind of leading things, but, you know, it's the followers that yeah. make what you are and it's you know everyone working at at Netzakalam and even our students and even clients who decide to work with us you know like every single company today could work with Netzakalam but for language right. services for right. trans and not every single but thousands hundreds of thousands 
but you, who is who is who are those people that I think deserve the recognition? The one who've decided to push and go back to their to their manager and be like, why don't we consider Natakalam for translation services? Because mm. when you choose Natakalam, you're actually giving a lifeline to refugees who might be completely cut off, instead of just sticking to your traditional. So those you know find there's so many different actors yeah. that contribute to making something, and yeah. um, there is a, an obsession with the founders sometimes. That, I'm guessing that takes years to build. It's not something that can be built overnight. That right, kind of and, and patience and time. And, and, yeah. and the other problem with the startup world is this complete obsession with fast returns, fast yeah. growth. Like, but that's, that was actually my other question about Lebanon. Is, is that expected from the get-go there, that it should be quick returns, fast? Is that part of the problem there that you don't, maybe there's not enough, I mean, for good reason, maybe people are not patient enough to let things grow slowly because of the situation, because people are not able necessarily wait it out? I think it's, it's. I don't know if it's just specific to Lebanon, but mm. in the startup, mm. for-profit startup world, mm. um, there is a sense of constant, like, you got to grow fast and you got to grow and scale with mass, like... You've experienced this in the U.S. Version. as well. It's not just a... Right, right. Yeah. I, I don't know if it'd be, if you can really isolate yeah, uh, and yeah. make a difference between, like, Lebanon and the U.S., for example... I think what would be more particular to Lebanon is just you're operating in such uncertainty. The right. banks, the access yep. to capital, uh, the stability, the internet, like yep. actually fundamentally basic aspects. Um, you're having to go around all of these challenges. And on top of it, if you're Lebanese or, I mean, if you're from countries where you can't easily travel, just, you know, going through the process. I mean, I've been around founders who could not travel. They didn't get the visa in time and they missed the competition. They missed right. the pitch. Right. You know, and how do you win a competition when you're pitching from Skype and everyone is, you know, there are fundamental, yeah. um, you know, differences there uh, to, to a knowledge. Uh, and I've, I'm, I'm blessed a million times to have been able uh, to benefit from my networks uh, in New York and in Lebanon and even in Paris and my, my uh, dual citizenship to help um, br bring Netzekanem to life. I've known you for perhaps 13 years, mm -hmm. maybe even a little longer. And every conversation we've had, I think, has revolved around this subject in some form or another. And Lebanon always seems to be in the background of what we're talking about. And it's nice to see that 13, 14 years later, we're both, in a way, doing similar things, although yours do, you're at a much more sophisticated level. But this connectivity and conversation collection, I think, is important. And I think people are talking more than they used to in Lebanon about things that matter. That's very important. And the diaspora is also talking to Lebanese at home and abroad. And the, it's, the whole issue seems so much more connected than it used to be. And the conversations seem to be more productive. And the last time I saw you was in Martyrs Square, where just people were literally discussing their problems together. Tense, discussions, politics in Martyrs Square, and every one of those venues was beaming it across the world, sharing their conversations with everyone that wanted to tune in. For me, that's magical to see that happen on that note. Aline, I thank you for coming up 90 blocks to make sure you came to where we agreed to meet, even though a Columbia professor <laughs> suggested you meet in Midtown, but you made it back up to Columbia to do this, and I hope we keep having these conversations down the road. Thank you, Aline. Thank you. It was great. Thanks for listening. 
and a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. Thank you.